Non-translators might not have paid much attention to the recent controversy over the projected translation of U.S. national youth poet laureate uh, Amanda Gorman's first book of poetry into Dutch. But many of us who translate have been following and discussing it quite a bit. The basic story is that the contracted publisher, um, which I believe is Mühlenhof, Mühlenhof, uh, hired author Marika Lucas Rienevelt to do the job, a choice that Gorman appears to have supported. Rienevelt uh, announced being excited about taking on the work on social media, and then some folks criticized the choice, including um, a Dutch journalist, um, Janice Doyle, who wrote in uh, De Volkskant, Volkskant, isn't it to say the least, a missed opportunity to hire Marika Lucas Rinebelt for this job. She is white, non-binary, has no experience in the field, in this field, but according to um, Moylenhoff, is still the translator of dreams. Um, and elsewhere she writes, not to take anything away from Rinebelt's qualities, but why not choose a writer who is, just like Gorman, a spoken word artist, young, female, and unapologetic black. And that's the end of the quote. Uh, I'm afraid I don't know who translated these quotes from the Dutch press, uh, Dutch uh, social media. They are in many of the English language stories online, uh, however. So uh, thank you, uh, invisible Dutch English translator. Um, Rineveld resigned over the criticism and the publisher announced that they'll be working with a team of uh, so far yet so far unnamed others to do the work. Now, rather than rehash some of the most often repeated and I have to say rather superficial reactions about the pernicious cancel culture that forced the translator to resign, etc., um, I've been drawn, as always, to more fundamental and serious translation issues uh, that are embedded in this episode. One is an unstated but ubiquitous implication that translators, especially translators of poetry, need to have some sort of deep, simpatico relationship with their author, even to the point of being of the same age, the same race, the same gender, political persuasion, and so on. Now, I'm not pronouncing judgment on this idea, only pointing it out, because, as I just noted, it is often there um, lurking in the background without our perceiving it clearly. And in any case, I'm not going to spend time on this because Lawrence Venuti has critiqued it quite a bit already, and anyone interested in this line of thought should consult his books with an eye toward the use of the word simpatico. Um, I think the, the, the place to look is uh, the invisibility of the translator, and I believe there's a, even a, a chapter entitled Simpatico where he um, explores this concept quite a bit. Um, now, the forms that this basic notion takes are wide-ranging and can sometimes be spotted in translator introductions and translator afterwards. One of the most fascinating instances I have read was in Kieran Carson's brief preface to his translation of Dante's Inferno, where he notes with disarming frankness that when he began his work on the Inferno, he really didn't know any Italian. Um, and then he proceeds to make a case for his experience in the troubles of Northern Ireland, 
um, in the 20th century as somehow akin to those of Dante in 13th century Florence. Um, I think I know where, uh, why he started translating this. I, I believe he was part of an omnibus translation of Dante's Inferno uh, by, I don't know, 20 different poets, edited by, I believe, Daniel Slager in the in late 1980s. Um, and he was contracted to do one canto. And so I think that was his introduction to translating Dante. Um, the implication of this move on his part in the preface uh, is that two poets with kindred experience trumps the mere linguistic expertise of the Italian specialist um, or, I don't know, somebody who has spent you know, three decades studying Dante is not as well equipped, this is, this is what comes through in the preface, not as well equipped uh, to translate Dante as a poet with a kindred experience, a poet without linguistic expertise who hasn't studied Dante for three decades. Um, but who has that poetry and uh, uh, affinity uh, of experience under their belt. Now, this move is more common in poetry translations, it seems to me, than in prose, where the persona of the translator often matters a great deal. Um, and in prose, the translator's role is frequently erased altogether, such that we might think we are reading the words of the author, not those of the translator, in fact. It's a fascinating kind of translation reading magic that publishers, especially large publishers, have tended to encourage historically, often neglecting to even note the presence of a translator in the book's creation, putting a picture of the author on the cover, not including the translator in the publicity materials, and generally doing everything they can to encourage the illusion that the work has not been filtered through another's mind and writing practice. Uh, let alone the editing, publishing, and broad political context of the receiving culture, which transforms it into something acceptable, or so publishers hope, to readers in that culture. Now I'm going to call this the illusion of limpidity. And a thank you, a big thank you to my friend David DePew for coining this phrase. I believe he made it up in a conversation we were having one time. The illusion of limp limpidity. And it is especially strong in what are often thought of canonical works of world fiction, world poetry. Now, poetry, uh, especially the poetry of well-known authors, seems to often require more of the translator's ethos in order to be accepted. In some ways, this is a, a marketing and publicity phenomenon, uh, which is on display in the Gorman-Rinevelt case as well, as publishers are hoping to put books into people's hands, and that won't happen if readers and critics reject the product out of hand. This means that either the publishers need to find a well-known name in their publishing environment whose credentials are likely to be accepted as adequate to the task. So for instance, imagine a poet refugee from East European totalitarianism who is translating another East European poet refugee. Or they need to pick someone whose background and public persona are perceived as somehow matching that of the individual whose work is being translated. If they can do both, that is, of course, ideal. 
it's worth noting that doing both is likely to be much easier in a place uh, like the Netherlands or France, partly because of their colonial past, than in a place like Japan, let's say, or Saudi Arabia, where the notion of simpatico translation, if it exists at all, is likely to take uh, very different forms from in New York, Paris, or London. Um, this is probably also why readers in Japan, for instance, read translations with greater charity, as it were, uh, since they know that the translators are almost invariably Japanese by birth and heritage, and they don't have any expectations to the contrary. These sorts of marketing and publicity motivations, however, are for the most part short-term attempts to capitalize on the moment. They are about selling books in the first months, it used to be years, but now it's months, of a release and getting good reviews. And I see that I've misspelled review in my blog, uh, but I'm going to leave it there on purpose, uh, a la the underground man, uh, from reviews from prominent voices in important venues, which are all key aspects of the contemporary publishing business. It is in this context that the optics of who is selected as a translator for an up-and-coming artist with an enthusiastic following tend to be very important. The longer term, however, is anyone's guess. It could be that the book becomes extremely popular in another culture over time. But that is very difficult to know, and publishers are generally not thinking about such things these days when the idea of building a backlist is rather rare. In the same way that time has tended to annihilate space in our hyper-commercial culture, so the timeline of what counts as success in publishing has tended to become shorter and shorter. Perhaps the time is coming when such success will happen even before the book comes out. Maybe we're already there. Of much greater interest to me are the embedded assumptions in these discussions about the skills of translators as being either portable or not, as well as a clash of sorts between those who think of translation as art and those who think of it more as a trade or vocation. The portability and vocation advocates might make a claim, and I have seen this claim made, such that, in principle, any experienced translator should be able to translate anything by anyone. Those who claim for translation the status of art may very well cringe at such an idea, which makes it sound like all one needs to be all, all one needs is to be certified by an appropriate body, pass some tests, hit some numerical markers. You've published three public poetry translations, and now you are certified as a poetry translator. And well, these kinds of intangibles, or this, the kinds of intangibles like that, are often brought out by the art uh, of uh, translation as art advocates, uh, such as inspiration or poetic sensibility, which are frequently the reasons a poem ends up singing or not in the receiving culture and becoming part of that culture over time, can't in fact be measured, let alone certified. It's entirely possible, moreover, for one person to hold all these views at the same time. Translators are a complex lot. Talking and listening at one and the same time tends to do things to your brain. An additional divide, no less stark in my experience, um, uh, tends to set 
freelance translators, those who make a living from translation, against those who have day jobs, for instance, as editors, teachers, publishers, and so on. The former rely on translation to pay the bills and often simply cannot afford to turn down a job, while they are also all, in my experience, highly ethical people who care about the social and cultural effects of the works that they translate, it is impossible to predict the long-term effects of a, tr of a translation one takes on for whatever reason. In this context, I can't help thinking of the negative example of the distinguished translator Angelo Treves, an Italian Jew, who translated Hitler's Mein Kampf into Italian for Bompiani in 1934. How could he know? The divide here comes at least in part from the fact that some have another job that pays the bills, which allows a kind of distance and critical stand that might not be as readily available to those, um, those of us who, um, those, uh, who need that translation contract. It is easier for those of us with day jobs to critique the actions of those who live by translation and often unstable and inconsistent way to make a living. Now, finally, this episode has brought to mind a rather contentious exchange um, that I remember between Sherry Moraga and Bob Shikochis um, that I witnessed at a conference on the promise of empathy at the University of Iowa in early 2002, in which Shikochis insisted he could imagine his way into the point of view of anyone as a way of writing a piece of fiction, including, for instance, an antebellum slave woman on a Georgia plantation while Moraga equally insistently claimed that he could not, and if he did, he would be exploiting the suffering of people who really had experienced that imagined point of view. Imagined for him, it was real for them. At the time, at least, there was no common ground. Um, it was an argument, they bumped heads, they did not see eye to eye, and that was the end of it. The artist claimed he could do it, the activist said, don't you dare. Now, while I suspect that the conversation would be different today, I have found myself thinking about how a translator's role might fit in such a situation, especially when it is assumed, as the Gorman-Rinnebelt case highlights, that the translator in important ways can stand in for the poet in the receiving culture, taking on not just the poet's message, but also the poet's mission.